James 5.19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Dennis Martin was six years old. He was a resident of Knoxville, Tennessee. Dennis and his family were visiting the Spence Field area of the Appalachian Trail in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It was Father's Day weekend. Um, little Dennis and his family hiked from Cades Cove to Russell Field and camped overnight um, the 13th into the 14th. June 14th, just six days before his seventh birthday, Dennis and his family hiked to Spence Field near the Appalachian Trail, and this is where they were going to spend their second night. Um, as they were hiking, Dennis came up with a plan to surprise the adults um, and some of the other children who were along with his family um, by running a little ways ahead from his father and hiding behind a bush. Uh, so he informed his father of his plan, and then he made good on it, ran just a little ways forward, and his dad saw him go off the trail and hide behind a, a bush. And uh, his dad figured uh, that's where he'll pop back out as we're walking by and, and scare the folks that are behind us. His father walked for five, he said, around five, uh, what I'm sure in retrospect were eternal minutes waiting for Dennis to pop out and surprise them, and it just never happened. Um, growing concerned, little by little, Dennis's father ended up running the trail two miles ahead, as far as he could possibly imagine that Dennis might have gone, and there was no sign of Dennis. After several hours of searching, the family finally sought help from the National Park Service rangers. The area where Dennis disappeared is marked by steep slopes and deep ravines. There are copperhead snakes, bears, feral pigs, um, and bobcats inhabiting the area. And a downpour broke out shortly after his disappearance, dropping three inches of rain in just a matter of a couple of hours. It washed out trails and caused streams to flood. And then temperatures the night of the 14th plunged to around 50 degrees. Search efforts, which were executed by the National Guard and even the Green Berets, were hampered by that rain. And then the following day, there was a heavy mist. There were over 1,400 people involved in the search for Dennis Martin. One set of footprints was discovered. Uh, one, one of the feet was barefoot, and one of them was wearing an Oxford. The footprints led to a stream where they ceased. By June 22nd, 56 square miles of the park had been searched. And the search was halted on June 29th and officially closed on September 14th. If you visit the National Park Service website, nps.gov, and you click the menu and you look around, you, you, you won't find a link uh, to the investigative services branch of the Park Service. And honestly, I don't know how I found it. Um, it's obscurely labeled under a folder called 1563, and you'll find there a little website that details everything that um, ISB agents do. At the end of the day, they investigate crimes throughout the national park system. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure some of you know I had to kind of work through my personal irritation over discovering yet another so-called federal policing agency 
but as I scrolled through the dozens and dozens of faces and stories, I couldn't help but feel a profound sense of sadness as I thought of the families who get left behind when people disappear like this. The horror of wondering whatever happened to a loved one who went out hiking must be the constant companion of moms and dads and sons and daughters and grandparents whose, whose wonderful vacation one moment hours later turns into this experience of an evolving resignation that flows from the realization uh, that days, months, weeks, and years passing by without sight of that loved one is the only proof you have that they're probably gone. So the oldest ISB cold case is dated June 14, 1969. Dennis was six when he went missing from the Spence Field area of the Appalachian Trail and was never seen by his family again. But there his picture is on their website with no details about his disappearance other than the location and a description of what he was wearing at the time. White male, four feet, one inches tall, 55 pounds, dark brown eyes, dark brown wavy hair, last seen wearing a red t-shirt, green trousers, and low-cut Oxford-style shoes. Dennis wandered off and was never seen again. He would be turning 61 this summer. The Bible doesn't talk about Christian people racing into sin. You don't see examples of people going along in faithful obedience uh, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, sprinting toward evil with a voracious appetite. It doesn't happen that way. Israel, in the heat of her disobedience, is described in those terms, running, panting, inflamed with passion, just mindlessly pursuing evil, senseless, out of control, drunk, rioting. But this is not the way the Bible talks about us. This isn't how the Bible talks about believers. The verbs used are different. Listen, wandering, deceived, Drifting, stumbling, nodding off, swerving, and slipping. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. In uh, 1 Timothy 6.9, in a familiar passage, Paul says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 20, he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have gone astray from the faith. In Proverbs 7, Solomon writes a lengthy dissertation where he says, My son, 
Keep my words, treasure up my commandments within you. There's a, there's a, a sense in which he's calling on his young boy to protect that which was given to him. Guard it. Don't let anybody else get to it. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress and her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight and the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face she says to him, I, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I will come out to, to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will return. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and her smooth talk compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know it will cost him his life. And we could write a similar proverb for our daughters, couldn't we? Paint a picture of the winsome, handsome man whose wife just doesn't understand him. These seductions happen bit by bit, not all at once. They happen piece by piece. And the decision to follow seems sudden, right? She's out there, oh, I, I did this and that and the other thing, and you should, and, and suddenly he goes, no, no, no. What's left out are the hundred glances that the young man takes, and mark it down. Proverbs 7 is not about young men just chasing adulterous women. It's about the lure and the seduction of sin in the heart of the child of God everywhere. The hundred glances that he takes at her before he ever has a conversation with her, before he ever wanders down her pathway. The seducer even has the appearance of religious interest and personal integrity. I had to make some sacrifices. I paid my vows. Even senseless young man doesn't race headlong. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Because, listen, wandering is born out of deception. There must be deception. And so James puts this in precise terms, right? Verse 19, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth. The picture, it's not a denial of the truth. It's not a rejection of the truth, not a dismissal of the truth. It's a drifting from it. 
an angling ever so slightly away, a failure to keep it fixed in the mind. That doesn't happen all at once. It just doesn't. When people are rescued from being lost in the wilderness, the stories are eerily similar. And I basically found four that are repeated over and over and over and over again. Here they are. First, I was distracted by my thoughts. I was staring at the ground as I walked, and I don't know how many minutes passed before I finally looked up and realized I didn't know where I was. Second, I was searching for bait because I had run out while fishing. So there I am, chasing these bugs through the meadow, and eventually I realize I have no idea where I am and can't even find my way back to my campsite. That guy that told that story was missing for six days. I dozed off. The boat drifted for two hours. When I woke up, I couldn't see land anywhere, and a storm was brewing quickly. I tried to follow my GPS, but my boat got swamped, and I lost my gear. That guy was lost at sea for almost half a year. He dozed off. I took a wrong turn, couldn't find my, my way back to the main road. And this person wandered for a week after their car ran out of gas. They dozed, drifted, wandered, got distracted, wandering from the truth. Listen to me, it's no different. I have a friend who was, uh, well, he probably still is, a music minister, informed me last fall with a text message that he was divorcing his wife. When I called him to get an explanation and try to reason with him, he said, this has been a long time coming. It's been years. I just can't do it anymore. When I challenged him with biblical concepts of fidelity, he informed me that he didn't think the Bible was God's word anymore. Well, I assure you, when we met in 2004, he believed the Bible was God's word. I helped him produce not one, but two albums declaring the fact that the Bible was God's word. His transformation happened slowly, and his dying marriage probably chronicled his slow descent from the heights of faith. We've probably all read accounts recently of this fad in, in Christianity, which has become so popular in the last decade. It's deconstruction. And uh, I've made a careful study of it. I think in some sense it's important to deconstruct. I mean... I agree, Jesus was something of a deconstructionist in that he tore down what the religious elite had built and installed something far more genuine, which is personal relationship with the living God. It's not what people are talking about when they say they deconstructed from Christianity. They're talking about, I just don't believe the Bible is accurate anymore. I just don't think it's God's word. And they give such convincing arguments that they have been deliberate and thoughtful and thoughtful in their decision to abandon the faith. Many, this is the part that gets me, many are victims of abusive pastors or abusive Christian so-called parents or just victims of the megachurch machine that Christianity has created over the last 40 or 50 years. They throw the Bible away along with the shackles of organized religion. You know what the problem with that is? 
The problem with that is that the Bible is the truth. This is the truth. And if you, if you depart from this, you have nothing else to do other than wander. And to go from the truth to wandering has to, to the activity of wandering has got to be far more difficult to overcome than to have never come to the truth and be wandering. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. It's funny, I don't hear pages turning anymore because it's just tap, 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 right? Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he appointed for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The alternative to that, and I'm not done there, so don't leave Hebrews 10, but a sermon is required here. The alternative to doing everything that the writer of Hebrews just said if you're not going to draw near, if you're not going to hold fast, if you're not going to consider one another, if we're going to start neglecting meeting, the alternative is verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And listen to me, please. This, this is not a vague threat against Christians who continue to sin when they know that something is sin. Look right at me. There is not a Christian on this earth who does not continue to sin when they know that it's sin. There isn't. Now, I'm not saying you can't forsake something that used to have you in its grip and leave it defeated behind you as a part of your past testimony. There's not a Christian on earth, though, who doesn't sin willfully. And Hebrews 10 has been so mangled to, 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 to beat the little lambs of God who, who have wandered off the path into sin. Oh, you go on remaining sinful, sinning willfully. There's nothing to render you to repentance. We, you need to understand what this means. If you put away Christ, if you put away his word, if you put away the gospel, then there is nothing else to renew you to repentance. I'm done with church. I've deconstructed. Well, then you're done with eternal life. And you're done with heaven. And you're done with all the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But 
a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, rejected the gospel, turned away from the one who gave his life to redeem you from sin? and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's it. That's what you can expect if you claim to accept and then later reject the gospel and never come to your senses. No child of God can do that. You want to know how I know it can't happen? John 10, 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. That's who doesn't believe. The ones who are not among the people of God are the ones who don't believe. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life. Well, what eternal life can't be temporary, right? It's eternal. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Look, you can't even sin your way out of Jesus's hand. But you can reject the gospel after claiming to believe it for 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years. And all you will prove if you die in that condition is you never knew him to begin with. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But listen to the writer of Hebrews. Listen to the writer of Hebrews reasoning with these wandering people who are in danger of rejecting the faith. Verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. And listen to me, sometimes the endurance we need, many times I would say, is the endurance to believe in the face of soul-crushing despair that there is yet forgiveness and mercy and cleansing and grace available to me at the throne of grace. Because there are times when we wander in sin to the point where when we turn and look at the throne, it appears to us not to be a throne of grace, but a throne of judgment. You have need of endurance. How did this happen? Cries the soul entangled in the wilderness of sin, which used to go with the throng into worship. 
I remember a time when I was committed to the kingdom of God and the cause of Christ, when I proclaimed the gospel with regularity and faithfulness, when my wife and I studied the word together, talked about these things, and somehow these, there's been these intervening months where I've gone off into some despicable selfishness and said, how could this happen? How did I get out here lost? You drifted. You wandered. You stumbled. You swerved, you dozed off. That's how it happened. So James tells us, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of transgressions. When we see someone drifting, what should we do? Listen. That's a super easy question, right? I'm trying to throw softballs to you guys. You're all intense. If we see someone drifting, what should we do? I mean, it, I think if you asked, not to be emotionally manipulative, but I think if you asked Dennis Martin's father, if you go back to that day when Dennis was going to scamper ahead on the trail and go off the side and hide and surprise the adults. What would you do differently? I think he would say, I wouldn't let my son leave the trail. I would have made him stay where I could keep my eyes on him. If we see someone drifting from the truth, what should we do? Now, Sinclair Ferguson, hilariously, in my opinion, um, in a sermon I heard him preach, referenced what he calls the second most popular parable told by Jesus. And he alluded to it by saying, you'll find it in your Bible under the subheading, somebody ought to do something. And I thought, There's no, I don't know of a parable with that subheading. And he says, there was a man laying in the dirt by the side of the road. He'd been set upon by robbers and beaten. And a priest approached and saw him cross to the other side and muttered under his breath, somebody ought to do something. And then a Levite likewise came and crossed to the other side of the road and said, somebody ought to do something. And if you'd indulge in embellishment, here's what I would say. A few church members passed by and said, somebody ought to call the elders. <laughs> oh, you got quiet on me. Someone's drifting from the truth and we see it. What should we do? Give them a book? Tell them they're being selfish? Make them apologize, shun them for failing to uphold the biblical standards, talk about them behind their back, judge them. I mean, it's built into what James says, right? If someone's straying, they're wandering from the tree, and someone brings, brings them back. It's like assumed. When this happens, and then this happens, when someone strays, and then someone brings them back, let them know this stuff. James says we should bring him back. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, listen. How do we do that? How do we, how do we bring somebody back? A soul wandering from the truth needs to be reminded of the truth, right? So recall that James calls God's word a mirror. Remember that? 
from 82 years ago when we started this epistle. In chapter one, a mirror, an accurate one anyway, just shows you what's going on. That's all it does. It's different from a TikTok or Snapchat filter that smooths the pores and eliminates the wrinkles. Y'all are being lied to. If you're lusting after somebody on the internet, just so you know, that they don't exist. Not like that. A mirror can't do that. A good mirror, you look in it, it's just, well, well, that's what, this is now the situation at 43. When I smile, my face turns into a myriad of canyons. It can't be helped. Somehow my wife hasn't aged, but I have. You look in the mirror, you see what's going on, and it isn't always pretty. People who wander from the truth are avoiding the mirror. I promise you that. They don't want to see reality. Folks who grew up or grow up in church will. This used to happen around the age of of 18, but we see it happening at all ages now. Folks who grow up in church will suddenly avoid the mirror of God's word because they found something that their flesh loves. So when confronted, you'll hear them say things like, I'm not sure I believe the mirror is accurate anymore. The mirror's not accurate? Okay. Like, mark my words, they know full well the mirror's accurate. They just don't like what it shows them. Allow me to give you an example. Why would God make someone gay and then condemn them for it? The Bible has been translated to say things it never said. Jesus never said this was wrong. Paul or the church added it later. If being gay is wrong, then you better quit eating shellfish because that's forbidden by God too. See, the mirror is wrong, not me. So here's what I do. I remind them of the truth. John 3. Fascinatingly, like the wrong verse, in my opinion, in John 3 is the most popular, well-known verse. I love 16. But man, how can you, like you gotta have 17 in there. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him for whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil not because the light was inaccurate Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. I believe that with my whole heart. Would to God that more Christians, especially more pastors, understood John 3.17. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. 
And let's put aside homosexuality specifically. God has forbidden his people from sexual immorality of all kinds. Right? All of it's off the table. And by the way, wherever sexual immorality is listed in the Bible, it's usually listed along some of the more acceptable sins that you see Christians permitting one another to engage in. Slander and conniving and robbery. You're avoiding his word because you love your sin. Come back to the truth and you'll see clearly. So that's my approach. Does that make sense? Somebody's wandering from the truth. I try to remind them of the truth. And the truth works like this, in this order. Hey, look right at me. Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to save you from that. And he's telling you about it in his word because if he's going to save you from the thing, he's got to point out what it is. And you're going to have to feel it in your heart. You're going to have to feel it in your guts. What you have done is evil. And you've got to hate it. But then you've got to realize Jesus isn't pointing it out to you just because he wants to kick you in the teeth. He's pointing it out to you because he loves you and he wants to redeem you from it. And they'll go, I've heard all that before. Okay, well, guess what? I don't need to yell at them. I don't need to shame them. I don't need to frighten them. I don't need to shun them. I don't need to kick them out of the church. I don't need, I, I don't, I don't need to harangue them and harass them. I, I, just like, I just need to bring them back to the truth. Imagine if Dennis Martin's father stood at the edge of the trail, searching for his son, screaming, You idiot! You moron! You wicked little brat! Like, what would you say if you saw a parent looking for their kid like that? Well, I don't blame the kid if they don't come back. And how many Christians have wandered from the truth and then been kicked over the edge of the cliff by somebody else claiming to be doing it in the name of Jesus? What would you shout from the trail to get your kid to find their way back? I love you. I want to help you. I want to embrace you, but you've got to come back. Follow my voice. Not condemnatory statements. So should we say that to anybody who's wandering from the truth. And if we do, James says, let them know that in so doing, you participate in saving the wanderer's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, of course, uh, there's a part of me that reads that in James, and I go, oof, James, don't say that. Because it's the Holy Spirit, right? Because But it, doesn't he tell the prophet Ezekiel, if you don't warn the people, their blood will be on your hands. So if we do warn them and they do come back, haven't we participated with the Holy Spirit in saving the wanderer's soul from death and covering a multitude of sins? What a blessing. So we could actually participate in the gospel when somebody, we see somebody wandering in sin, which for some Christians would be pretty revolutionary because normally what we do is participate in an execution. Let's pray.